Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. I'm Julia Hobsbawm of Editorial Intelligence. Welcome to the Thought for the Day club event, EI club event. For those of you not familiar with our club, we are designed to keep you as mentally fit and intellectually curious as a gym is designed to keep you physically fit. Those of you in the uh, professional working classes, as we like to call it. And so in order to help you do that, every month we have a very eclectic mix of speakers who don't convene to talk about a topic uh, as uniform as the economy or the state of politics, but they say whatever is on their mind. It's a sort of secular thought for the day. And uh, what is interesting is that afterwards, when we have a group conversation, you often find that despite the disparity in what they talk about, there is always or usually a common theme that emerges. Um, I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they're going to speak. Um, on my right, both politically and literally, is James Forsyth. I'm sorry, that's such a cheesy chair-like thing to say, but it works. Um, James is the political editor of The Spectator and writes a column in the Mail on Sunday. I have to say I was staggered that in his column on Sunday he disclosed that the government has 140,000 procurement cards in circulation, which are effectively credit cards on which government employees have spent things on Tesco and karaoke bills. So... Whether he's going to discuss that or not, I do not know. But James Forsyth is uh, the political journalist who really takes the bellwether of the nation. He will be followed on my far left, probably also correctly, by Walter Schwartz. Um, if anyone thought that nepotism was being hushed up and put in the corner, they're, they're totally wrong in this case because he's my uncle. And uh, um, I'm very, uh, you know, just say the word, Uncle Wall. But actually, it, you're in for a complete treat because um, Walter tells the story very vividly in this absolutely beautiful book called The Ideal Occupation of... Uh, several decades of journalism in the days before the internet where what was reported was what you got, um, you know, hastily broadcast, as it were, down the line or typed up from the field as it happened. And it's, a, it's an extremely interesting picture of the world given that it contrasts so much with the world that we're in now. And finally, Viv Groskop, who almost defines description at this point in time, she's... And we're not related, so she's here entirely on her own merits. Uh, but we are both multiple mothers, and um, she has almost as many children as I do. And whenever I turn on the radio, she's, she's on it, and she's writing. And she then is also a stand-up comedian, but she, she manages to speak fluent Russian and be an expert on Russia and write about all sorts of things. So I've absolutely no idea what she's going to talk about. Everyone is going to speak for five-ish minutes. Um, and I'm going to do arm-waving and things if they go massively over so we can then have a group discussion. So at this point, James Forsyth, what is on your mind? Well, I think the interesting story today is Chris Hoon and his um, penalty points and his uh, remarkably acrimonious battle with his soon-to-be ex-wife. Um, and I'm sure any divorce lawyers could... Uh, apparently her lawyers are very concerned that, that, um, about her behaviour at the moment... And his lawyers are certainly concerned about her behaviour. Um, but I think the interesting question politically is what does this tell us about the coalition and how the coalition works and how it will work going forward? Well, I think the most remarkable thing about this story, which is, which is full of remarkable elements, is that you have a cabinet minister, a secretary of state, and a relatively senior one at that, being accused of a, of a criminal offence, of a conspiracy to pervert the course of justice, making false statements to the police. These, these are not minor matters. These are things that carry prison sentences. This is not a matter of... This is not really about speeding. This is about um, making false statements to the police, which is a very serious offence. And David Cameron and his spokespeople won't say whether the Prime Minister believes him when he denies it. All they'll say is, Chris Hoon has denied the allegations. Uh, and... You don't need to be an expert in reading between the lines to see that they are clearly sending out a message saying, we're not quite sure if he's telling the truth. And what's so striking about that is, in any normal single-party government in this country, 
the Prime Minister would have to make an immediate judgment call in a situation like this. Does he believe the Cabinet Minister or not? You know, Peter Mandelson was sacked in about 25 minutes because Tony Blair felt over the um, Hinduja passport business. I have to make a decision about whether I believe what he's saying or not. And because if I don't, it's going to reflect on me and my government. Instead, Cameron's attitude is, you know, I've left it to the Deputy Headmaster Clegg. He's seen him. He says he believes him. We'll, we'll see if that's true. So you see, a remor- you see how this coalition has already changed the nature of government, that Cameron can kind of soar above this scandal, kind of say it's up to the Lib Dems to sort it out. If Hoon ends up having to resign, there'll be no political damage for Cameron. If Hoon carries on, Cameron can say, that's fine. Liberal Democrats made that decision. And then if anything embarrassing were to come out six months, 18 months down the line, he is taking, I think, the reasonable view that it wouldn't rebound on him. So we're already seeing a, a striking statement of how the Prime Minister can distance himself from a member of his own government. Um, and then the next intriguing detail in this whole business is, if Hoon does end up having to go, the uh, protocols of government established after coalition was formed are quite clear. It's not David Cameron who will decide who his successor is. It's Nick Clegg. And so we have it because Liberal, he gets to decide which Liberal Democrats replace which Liberal Democrat cabinet ministers who have to go. So we've got a kind of remarkable situation where an amazingly senior government post at a time of huge sensitivity around all this green stuff. You know, this carbon budget that's going to be announced today. You know, the, the, David Cameron's view seems to be kind of um, make us the greenest government ever, but not yet. Not until we've got the economy sorted out. So you've got this immense sensitivity about how much environmental regulation you're prepared to have, how many restrictions you're prepared to put on things that could produce economic growth but could also damage the environment. At this moment, when this is moving right into the centre of the political debate as part of the kind of whole conversation about how you get growth going in the economy again. The Prime Minister will have absolutely no control over who ends up serving in his cabinet dealing with this issue. And it's not, it's not a small question because there's a massive difference. You know, if he sends in one of the more economically liberal Liberal Democrats, like Jeremy Brown, you know, that is something that the Tories could very much live with. He probably would roughly share their views on where the trade-off is between environmentalism and the economy. But if he decided to send in a, a I don't think he will, but he decided to send in someone like Simon Hughes, a more campaigning Lib Dem, you get up a completely ridiculous situation where you've just appointed someone to a cabinet who completely cuts against where the government is trying to go. So you see another thing about how Cameron is kind of, yes, he's, yes it is helping him in that he doesn't have to make a snap judgment on whether Chris Hoon is telling the truth or not. But it does mean that he's kind of almost at the mercy of his deputy on where his deputy chooses to go in picking a successor and how many problems that could cause for his government. Um, But then, you know, if you look at this morning's Times, you see a reminder that the rows in this government are not just Tory Lib Dem. Um, There is also kind of blue-on-blue action. You know, this this, uh, letter from Liam Fox and letters from Liam Fox to the Prime Minister seem to have an unfortunate habit of leaking. This is the second one that has somehow found its way into the papers. Um, criticising the plan to enshrine in law raising development spending every year until we've met the kind of UN goal of 0.7% of um, gross national income. And I think here we see something interesting, which is you see something about how the Tory right, which in some ways under the Cameron leadership before the election had been sidelined, has in some ways been revived by coalition. Because all of a sudden it's a balancing act again. So Fox can jump up and down on one end of a seesaw and the government has to move a little bit because this isn't a purely Tory government. So Cameron can't say a lot of the things to the Tory party that would normally keep the Tory party happy. He can't stroke them in quite the same way if he was leading a single-party government. So instead, you're seeing Fox here positioning himself. Now, Fox doesn't think that Cameron's really going to junk this commitment. There's no way he is. What he's trying to say is, you're cutting the defence budget at the same time that you're raising the aid budget. And... Um, I think if the defence budget was to be found a little bit more money to make things slightly easier for the Ministry of Defence on financial terms, um, these letters might not happen to slip out into the public domain. Um, so what you've got going on here is, is a kind of interesting example of how Fox, who was, a, who was a relatively sidelined figure before the coalition was formed, has now been empowered precisely because he does represent the kind of right tentpole of a coalition. And you can't keep the whole thing in balance if you take away that tent peg, um, which I think is... So I think that is another interesting... And it would be very interesting to see at the next election how, what the Tory manifesto says. 
Is the Tory manifesto more of a kind of distinctively, classically old-school Tory document in an attempt to kind of re-establish difference after five years of coalition government with all the compromises inherent in that? Or will it be a kind of even more Cameroon document than we expected? Kind of, will it almost be a coalition manifesto, even though the Liberal Democrats have their own one? And then the other great story today is, is House of Lords reform. Um, and there was a wonderful little section on the Today programme this morning where John Maples, who's a Tory peer who's opposed to reform, was out there reminding MPs of all the reasons they shouldn't vote for an elected House of Lords. You know, do you really want another elected figure on your patch? You know, do you really want somebody else who's going to be invited to open church fates and cause you problems? Do you really want another democratically elected chamber that, could, that would have far more power and far more legitimacy in questioning the Commons' decisions and blocking measures? So I think what we're seeing in here, though, which is interesting, which is, which is that Clegg is repositioning himself. That for years, uh, the, a lot of Liberal Democrats thought that if the AB referendum was lost, they would move straight on to House of Lords reform, and that you know, they would announce that finishing Lloyd George's work, and this was all going to be the kind of big centrepiece of the Liberal Democrat response. But I think they've learned a very important lesson from the AB referendum, which is that the country isn't particularly interested in constitutional issues. You know, the fact that they... Um, but AB was defeated kind of everywhere apart from kind of Camden, Islington and the uni- a few university seats and a couple of other London boroughs, really has kind of, I think kind of hit them, has been quite a kind of bucket of cold water over even the most fanatical Lib Dem constitutional obsessive. So I think instead you're seeing him trying to reposition himself as kind of a deputy prime minister who's focused much more on kind of bread and butter issues, you know, the NHS, jobs, you know, the economy. You're, so you're seeing a move away. Clegg is trying to say that we are you know, this, 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 slight, this phrase he likes to use, you know, the party of alarm clock Britain, the people who get up early and work hard. You know, he's trying to move himself away from its view of a kind of very liberal, chattering class party. And then the final thing I'll leave you with is that, um, is that we're talking about all of this, but everyone's not talking about the, the biggest political development in recent times, which is the fact that the Scottish nationalists now have a majority in the Scottish Parliament. They have the votes to call a referendum on Scottish independence. And now Salmon doesn't want to do this now. He knows he wouldn't win it now. But just watch over the next few years to see Salmon slowly pick little fights, little things designed. And what he's really trying to do is he wants to play, he wants to put Cameron between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, he wants to put Cameron between the newspapers down here and Tory MPs who object to yet another more money, the Scots getting something else that the English don't get, you know, whether it's free tuition fees, free care for the elderly, free prescriptions, more and more things for Scotland, you know, like a lower corporation tax rate for Scotland that will drag business from Newcastle to Edinburgh, um, and that disadvantage North England, lots of things like that, you know, little things that will stick, that will irritate um, the English, which is create a kind of, and then he'll say, oh, look, the English don't really like us anyway, look at, and then on the other side, if Cameron blocks those, Salmon will say, look, the reason we can't get Scotland's economy growing in the way that we need to, the reason we can't get the jobs and the investment we need is because Westminster's insisting that we have this ridiculously high corporation tax level. If we were independent or if we were fiscally autonomous, if we had these powers, we'd slash corporation tax and look at these other countries in Scandinavia, we'd be booming. So Salmon is going to constantly play this game for the next four or five years. And then I think his plan in the long run is to get to 2016, to hope that David Cameron wins the next election, but still only has kind of one MP or maybe even no MPs in Scotland, and then hold a referendum on either fiscal autonomy. I think he'll hold a three-question referendum. Do you want the status quo, fiscal autonomy, or independence? And in a three-question referendum, the middle option generally benefits because it inherently seems the moderate option. And then when he's got that, he's almost there to independence. Thank you. (laughs) It's very interesting that the spectator's voice is that Cameron is boxed in by his coalition partners because Jonathan Friedland wrote a column on Saturday saying that the Lib Dems were basically chained to the cabinet desk hoping that something marvellous would turn up before 2015. So are you really saying that the Tories are effectively hamstrung? Well, I think they are. I mean, because the fact is, in reality, David Cameron cannot get any piece of legislation through the House of Commons if the Liberal Democrats oppose it. Yeah. So he has to keep the coalition going. And it's quite clear that if Chris Hume were to walk out, it's not David Cameron's choice who the next, you know, energy secretary is. 
And whoever Clegg picks there will have a kind of huge power and influence. Is that right? Is that a done deal? Yeah, that, that the is. So, so they, they, they've written down, basically, after the... So if someone storm, walks yeah. or is disgraced off yeah. the set, then there's, yeah. it's there's still a, a Lib Dem... Of, oh, okay, there's a that's set number of Lib Democrat cabinet ministers, and it's Clegg gets to nominate the successor, and he only nominates one person. And Cameron, okay. But Cameron still... There was a big argument about this, but Cameron still has the right to sack any member of his cabinet. But he doesn't have the right to, to appoint replace. Mm, any Liberal Democrat he's at. Um, I forgot to tell you that this is being recorded, but those of you that avidly download off iTunes or off the MP3 know that. But it does mean that when you come to speak, you are immortalised. It seems slightly odd to remind you, just as Walter is about to speak, that there is a Twitter hashtag for this event, should any of you be tweeting, which is EI Club. Because um, I think you're not exactly baffled, but you're not enamoured, are you, with tweeting, Walter? Walter, tell us about yeah. an ideal occupation. Uh, <coughs> why am I here? Uh, I am Julia's uncle, of course, but there must be another reason. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'm not a pundit, and I, I, I really am not a pundit like these two. And, I'd, uh, and I always thought of the editorial intelligence as the pundits' fan club and mutual admiration society. <laughs> but looking around here, I see that it's much, much more. So it must be about this uh, memoir I wrote, The Ideal Occupation. The Ideal Occupation, because when I was 13, we all had to write an essay with that title. I wrote that I wanted to go round the world with a notebook in my hand, but not controlled in an office by an editor, in short, a foreign correspondent. The very next day, I started practicing in my diary. At 17, I was in Paris on my own for six months, then at Oxford, then in the army in the Malayan jungle. Everywhere, my diary and long letters to my parents. At last, I was a real journalist. On the evening standard, we had to visit celebrities in their hotels. I could speak French, so when Jean Cocteau came to town, they sent me. Cocteau was in bed when I came into the room, and he, where he invi immediately invited me to join him. <laughs> I declined, but he was very nice and gave me a very good interview. I itched to be abroad. Nobody sent me, so I decided to take myself abroad to somewhere newsworthy. To do that, you have to have a wife, game for adventure and likely penury. And Dorothy was willing. We thought Israel might be pretty newsworthy. We drove out to Israel, sleeping in our car in open fields. If there were campsites in those days, we'd never heard of them. We took Dorothy's fierce little papillon dog, who attacked dogs twice his size, to protect us. Tio was accident-prone. He was bitten by sheepdogs counter-attacking in Yugoslavia. In the Israeli tramp steamer that took us from Izmir in Turkey to Haifa, Tio fell down the hatch. In the Negev desert, Tio chased a gazelle across the hostile Jordanian border, which we couldn't cross, so we had to wait till he came nonchalantly back. Every newspaper in the world already had its correspondent in Israel, so I wrote a book instead about the Arabs who lived there. To go around the Arab villages, we hired two donkeys. They were so lazy that Tio had no problem keeping up with them. Next, we took ourselves, with Tio, to Nigeria, where nobody had a staff correspondent. I started sending pieces to the Guardian and the Observer. They liked them. They asked for more. I was launched. When things got tough, as they do in interesting parts of the world, I was deported. They let me back in, but then the whole country fell apart into civil war, and the breakaway region, Biafra, took me for a spy and a saboteur and put me in prison, where I spent a couple of weeks on death row. They let me out after two Guardian leaders explained to Biafra's Colonel Ojuku that it was not in his interest to hold on to Schwartz. Since I was now an expert, the Guardian took me on as foreign leader writer, a privileged job I didn't enjoy, because apart from West Africa and the Middle East, I was quite ignorant of the world. I had to write six or eight hundred wise words, telling some government I had barely heard of what it ought to do. Uruguay, Vanuatu, Laos. There was no Google, no Wikipedia. 
only browned and battered old cuttings in files. I itched to be abroad. So I went back to Israel feeling very grand as staff correspondent of The Guardian and The Observer. But we lived a very simple rural life, and I've always found that makes better copy than city life. I rode a horse from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. It took three days. I learned a lot about Israel, and my piece about that was the one everyone remembered. I asked a woman in a village where I could find some water for my horse, and she said, Do I have a bucket? <laughs> Horses really helped me in my job. Dorothy got friendly with a woman whose young daughter was a keen rider, so they got into the habit of spending Saturdays at our place for a picnic lunch. Her husband was Simcha Dinitz, Prime Minister Golda Meir's closest advisor. He gave me exclusive briefings in his office. On those days, I knew for certain that I was in the ideal occupation. In the morning, ride round the orange groves on the lovely, orange groves on the lovely hills around Jerusalem sampling the fruit on the way. In the afternoon, drive 15 minutes to the Prime Minister's office, get briefed by Simca, and file my exclusive inside story on whatever was happening. In Israel, I tried to stay objective, which wasn't hard, because whatever you, whenever you want to criticize Israel, it's already been done far better than you can do it by Israeli dissidents. In India, the problem was to stay optimistic, I wanted to write about development projects that work, but they rarely did work. And then came a riot here, a flood somewhere else, and then a horrific famine. In France, we lived successively in three somewhat run-down chateaux because Dorothy needed enough land for breeding horses. These were rustic places, and my pieces were enriched by the vernacular. I felt I could write about the French in a way Colleagues who lived in Paris couldn't. You know, I get the feeling that my fellow hacks don't approve of this memoir business. And when the book came out, I dreaded the reviews, especially The Guardians, and especially if, God forbid, it was by Peter Preston, my last editor, about whom I'd expressed some gentle criticism. There it was at last, my God, by P.P. himself. He was nice about the book, and even nicer about me, but he wrote that the shade of William Boot is never far from this charming memoir. <laughs> Boot, as you all know, was the chaotic and blundering hack in Evelyn Waugh's satire Scoop. And then Peter, P.P. says, there was more than a touch of Peter Mayle about my family life in rural France with his domestic vicissitudes. I see his point. There was that election night. An election is a tense moment for a foreign correspondent because he has only minutes after the result is announced to file his front-page story. In my Paris office, I had arranged for someone in Agence France Presse to call me a few minutes before it was broadcast. At last, the phone rings. We, oui? But it was Dorothy. The house is on fire. <laughs> well, call the fire brigade. The result came in two minutes later. The, the kitchen was alight for an hour. <laughs> well, finally, after all these years in all these countries, we came home. And you know what? I was beatified. Yes, they made me religious affairs correspondent. <laughs> and guess what? Apart from covering religion, I had complete control of the Saturday column, Face to Faith. No editor or sub-editor stood between me and my opinion about God, miracles, women priests, and sinister cults. At last, I was, after all, a pundit. Now, just one small minute uh, more, just to put myself in context. My adventures were prehistoric. I worked in a different epoch. I stumbled out of airplanes with my typewriter into scenes of crisis, knowing only what I'd heard on the radio, desperate to up update myself however I could, not even a mobile phone. I wonder if our stories might have been sharper, leaner, fresher. Modern correspondents have so much information at their fingertips that they must often be tempted to cut and paste and paraphrase background information, anecdotes and opinion into their copy, making it 
a little flabbier, a little more like the story written by their rivals. But in another way, it was easier for us. We filed our stories to a deadline, and then we could relax, drink away the tension, and enjoy the places and the people we lived among. I know no finer taste than the first mouthful of beer in a hotel bar after filing my story. <laughs> Today's correspondents serve a digital, round-the-clock, seven-days-a-week news desk. I am sorry for them. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure that we will uh, revisit this whole question about journalistic standards and, in fact, something that James said about, um, about the truth about Hune, and uh, I think that we are very preoccupied with what truth is. Um, I have to just ask you briefly, Walter, about France and Dominique Strauss-Kahn, because, of course, France is in paroxysms of shock and outrage. What do you think would be happening if you were in whatever is the modern-day press room right now vis-à-vis uh, -vis DSK? Well, we'd be obsessed with, uh, with, with conspiracy theories. I mean, the, the French are very good at that. And, of course, they've got the canard enchaîné with uh, two or three conspiracies every week. Um, I must say I would have been... I was a bit tempted to feel that um, Sarkozy, who's, who's, who's the pretty shrewd and nasty operator when he wants to be, uh, might, could have done such a thing very easily. I mean, all it needs is... I mean, he, it was a Sofitel French hotel. All it would need would be, would be one, uh, one very good agent to contact, to, to, to get, get alongside one hotel, pretty hotel worker, and arrange the whole thing and set up the whole thing. But having said that, um, Probably not, because he's got a, he's got a history uh, and so on. But there, actually, my thought, my main thought about this is, it's probably a good thing, this, you know. Because do, does France, who's had Sarkozy all these years, who's, who's a, uh, a, in many ways a, a difficult character, I mean, the French loathe him personally, uh, apart from his presidential policies. Um, does it want another person with, with, with a, a known dodgy character record, a known uh, person who does tend to jump on women. I don't think France wants that, and so it might, France might have got away with something good, and I, I've got a feeling that might be the, the opinion that will come out of this. Thank you. And now for something possibly completely different. No pressure. Viv. No. Well, um, I'd just like to say, I think that France probably only lets anyone be in public office if they like jumping on women. <laughs> that's, that's just my view. Um, I can't offer you uh, an insight into the inside track um, in government, which James did so eloquently, nor have I almost slept with Jean Cocteau. Uh, but I can offer you some insight from one of the uh, many strange um, and... Uh, Slightly, I always think it sounds a bit cocaine addict-y when people say what I do. It's like, she does this, she does this, she does that, and also she's a cocaine addict. Um, but one, of the, one of the things that I do is, is I'm trying to do at the moment is stand-up comedy. Um, and part of that um, is improvisational comedy. Um, and that's the message I wanted to bring to you today. My thought for the day comes from improv comedy, and it is say yes and. In inverted commas, yes and. Now, this is very good advice to Chris Hoon's wife, who <laughs> has failed to say yes and. Not such great advice to anyone meeting Dominic Strauss-Kahn, especially <laughs> for <a> woman. <laughs> but it's a really interesting concept, yes and. Um, it's used as a verb in improv comedy. You're, you're told to yes and everything. Anything anybody says to you in improv comedy, you're in the moment, you accept what's being said to you, you say yes and, and you move on. Um, it's a concept that's starting to be used in politics, in negotiation. Uh, it's the idea of saying yes to everything. And one of the best, um, one of the biggest uh, advances in the publishing world this year um, has gone to Tina Fey, um, the American comedian who took off Sarah Palin. Um, she was paid £5 million for her book. And a really big part of this book is explaining about saying yes and. Um, she's somebody who seemed as if she came to prominence overnight um, because of the whole Palin thing. In, in fact, she'd been doing improv comedy for 10 years. 
And she talks a lot about how saying yes and is what brings something to the table. It's what keeps you on your toes. It's what promotes creativity. Um, she gives an amazing example in the book of, obviously you wouldn't perhaps want to do this in real life, but it's an excellent example of how it works in improv, is that somebody says, freeze, I've got a gun. And you say, yeah, it's actually your fingers. Uh, that's, that's the opposite of saying yes and. Somebody says, freeze, I've got a gun. You say, oh my God, don't shoot me. Or as Tina Fey suggests, you say, you bastard, that's the gun I gave you for Christmas. <laughs> so saying yes doesn't mean yes, shoot me. It means saying yes to the idea. Um, it's the politics of agreement, the politics of acceptance, the politics of being in the moment and accepting what the other person is offering to you. Um, another example she gives as well is if the other person says to you, wow, it's hot in here. You don't just say yes, because that adds nothing. You say, oh my God, hell is so much worse than I expected. Or yes, indeed, why did we climb into this dog's mouth? Um, you need to say yes, and then you need to say and. You need to add something um, to the conversation. And if you watch Paul Merton doing Have I Got News For You, he's another master improviser. He does improv theatre at least once a week still on the quiet in the comedy store. Um, and he's somebody who always says yes and. If you listen to his responses on Have I Got News For You, everything behind it that you could insert a yes and in front of everything that he says. It's an acceptance of what the person has said and moving it on. It's not saying no. The opposite of yes and is no but. No but doesn't, doesn't take you anywhere. Um, and it always amuses me to think about the coalition because the coalition is all about saying yes and. Um, you need to say yes and because it's a fact. You know, no but is just going to make, not, not going to make anything move forward. And that, that's why yes and is very powerful because if there's an impasse, you get to it very quickly because you end up saying, mm, I agree with what you're saying, yes, and actually, we're Liberal Democrats, we're not Conservatives, so we're not going to go there. So if you get to a point where you can't agree, then you know what it is very quickly, and you know that that's a point of no compromise. But in a place where you're continually saying no but, no but, no but, you're not actually suggesting where your place is in the compromise. Um, it's what they call the rule of agreement, the rule of acceptance. And it reflects exactly what happens in real life. The improv stage is a, is a crazy place where anything can happen. Well, actually, life is like that. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. And constantly in meetings, in daily life, I think we're all thinking, well, we're here, but we want to get over here. Well, you can't do that. You're here. And you need to find a plan. I'm sounding like kind of something out of Oprah now. <laughs> but it's true. It is true. It is true. Um, I wanted to suggest some ideas um, for Yes And in today's climate to show you that they very quickly show what your own view is on things, where your sarcasm lies, where your disagreement lies, or whether you're actually okay about things. So let's say... Let's get a super injunction. Yes. And let's pretend none of this ever happened and you've been really faithful to your wife. <laughs> <laughs> let's say, uh, for example, uh, let's say, you need to say that you were with me on the day that I was driving the car. Yes. And also we were watching pigs fly in the garden. <laughs> <laughs> And in the government context, let's say, let's all become extremely conservative and have a very right-wing agenda. The Liberal Democrats could reply, yes, let's do that, because the electorate are really not going to stand for that. Actually, you've got a point. So saying yes and, please try and do it today, even to stuff that you totally don't agree with. It makes you more adventurous, makes you more imaginative, leaves you open to possibility. And remember, if we didn't have yes ands, then Tina Fey would never have thought of the line, yes, and I can see Russia from my house. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, to use a phrase that we all hate and use all the time, that ticked the boxes of eclectic. I don't think we could... Um, but there are little strands of connectedness that I discern. Um, James, what do you think about Yes And? You were nodding reasonably vigorously. I'm thinking there's gonna, I'm going to see it in a column. I, mean, I think it's interesting, this argument about Yes And, because I think if you look at coalition politics, it, it does require an ability to see, A, where there's common ground, and B, where you can't agree. And if you keep disputing someone's premise, you'll never get to the point where you realise that, that you actually can't get any further, you can't agree. If you accept where they're coming from, it's far easier to say, OK, we're going to have to park that because we can't possibly agree on that because our, our opinions are too different. But if you're constantly saying, no, that, you know, for example, if you take this argument about um, university admissions, you know, if you constantly say, oh, no, 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 you don't want to fix the university system at age 18. You know, you've just got to do it purely on people's A-level results, nothing else. No, don't take into account academic potential. You'll never be able to get into a conversation about how far you're prepared to go. So it's actually, it is about saying, I accept your point, I understand where you're coming from, and here's how far I can go in agreeing with you. I think that's the interesting. But is it also that it changes sort of political discourse more profoundly than that, in that I'm sensing that the tribalism that was very much endemic in the political system, certainly when Labour was in, you know, you're with us or you're not with us, almost becomes obsolete because it's sort of the politics of... It is a coalition sort of sensibility. Yeah, I, I think the difficulty with it, to, to use the improv analogy, is that when you do this improv thing... And, I mean, I think it is an amazing application for psychology to, to think about that, and it's something that you know, we could all benefit from. But the problem is, in the improv situation, you're all on the same page. You're all in the same situation. Everybody has agreed to say yes and. And in the government situation, I think there are some people who were happy to say yes and, and others who are just not. And unfortunately, if you're the one who's agreed to it, then you're just being a yes man. But That's where does that come with jokes you know, an actual beginning, middle and an end joke, which are often politically incorrect. Is a politically incorrect joke categorised as a yes and or a no but? Oh, a very good question. Well, you're getting into all kinds of crazy things like the rule of three and things like What's that What's the now. rule of three? A rule Briefly. of three is, well, again, you can listen out for that any time. I, I don't know if I can think of an example of it. Um, when you have a joke, you give an example, an example, a counterexample, blah, blah, blah. It, that's what makes a rule of three. Um, and it's just something about our psychology that we really love to hear. Two things and then one thing overturning it. Um, but, yeah, what were you asking about? Well, no, just how, how, how far you can uh, take it. So, look, what we've covered so far, to recap, is whether Chris Hune um, is going to sort of stay in Cabinet and it hinges on who believes who, and the fact that even if he goes, it doesn't... Uh, score a point in favour for the Tories, they're bound inexorably. Um, you made all sorts of interesting points, of which the um, impact of the Scots Nats agenda on, on um, the rest of English politics is only just beginning to be known, um, and the nature of coalition and compromise. Walter, I think, talked as much as anything else about free reporting when you there was no agenda you just reported and whether you did it from a horse or you did it down the line or you did it there was no um there was no tick boxing was there in your day Walter? Well, I mean, we, there was news and we we, we were newspaper men and, and yeah. when there was a story we had to cover it and, uh, but um the, the, when you're a resident foreign correspondent, that's what's so magical about it. You know, you're free to go and, and explore all kinds of other things about that country. And um, I, I think it's lovely to get outside. Do you think, though, journalism was a sort of purer activity then as now? You know, in a kind of Well, only in, I think only way. in the sense that, that I described it. I said that, that when you have so much information, literally at your fingertips... Um, it, it's inevitable that there's a certain sameness that comes about in, in what you write. Mind you, that, does that apply, I was wondering, to these very, very brave war correspondents we're seeing now who, who really, on whom we really do very often depend. We, don't, we, we just don't know what's happening in Libya unless, if it wasn't for these brave correspondents. Um, 
that's a, an exceptional situation. And I don't, I don't suppose those correspondents there would have learned anything useful from their laptops or their, uh, or their iPads. <coughs> so we're going to have some comments and questions. And it's entirely uh, up to you whether you respond specifically to something someone said or whether you come off at a complete tangent. Say who you are. Man, straight in front of me. Wait for the microphone. Keep your comments or questions brief-ish. Tim Boswell, a member of the House of Lords, thinking about Walter on death row, as of today, a fellow sufferer. Um, I've always wanted, because you get absent-minded, to rename this the Emotional Intelligence Club, and I think that's where the three of you are coming from. But can I ask a question, which is, I think, in a way, prompted by three, about um, standards of public life, specifically about... Um, not so much privacy as the idea that there is a political class who are not like us, don't say yes and to what we might put to them, uh, are above the law or feel they're above the law, whose conduct is not um, reined in uh, and are shocked when that happens. I mean, clearly at one end of the spectrum, you have the free entry action to DSK. We have our sort of bout of moralism going on about Chris Hewn, and you have the Americans saying, at least in principle, well, all the way up to the president, we don't care who you are, but you're still in Rikers Island tonight. Yes, James, that's a very good point. I think we have a political class in that there are, you know, shared assumptions, shared opinions that kind of span the kind of front-ranked politicians in all three parties, which choke off debate on certain issues. I don't think we have a political class in the French sense, in that I don't think we have people who think of themselves as above the law. I think that... Do you think in French class they do? I think in France there is a belief that, you know, politicians get away with things. You know, if you look at this story of uh, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, the, the journalist who has come forward and said, uh, allegedly, that he had raped her previously, her mother, had, her mother had said to her, you know, look, he's a politician, he's a big man, you don't report that. I, maybe I mean naive, I just don't think that would happen in this country. I think that, you know, I don't think if a, if a British politician had um, raped a female journalist, I don't think their reaction would have been... Well, but hang on, he her. didn't... He allegedly attempted to rape her, and I don't... I would venture there isn't a woman in the room who hasn't been jumped on by a lecherous man no, at no, some I mean, point and decided not to make an allegation of it. Am I right? How many women in this room would say they have had an experience of an over-amorous man in some shape or form where they've gone, I'm just not going to raise it because it's going to cause me aggro? the man... <laughs> I mean, is, is the Dominique Strauss-Kahn the best litmus test of a political class thinking it's above itself? Because my point is, with sexual politics, it's probably happening all over no, the place. No, I think it's the sense of... I, I, if you read the female journalist's account, um, I think it's the, it is the sense of entitlement that he believes comes from the fact that he's a politician, right. she's a journalist, right. she can't get on in, her, in that world... He's higher up the food chain. ..without... Right. Um, if he puts the black spot on her, she felt, she, her mother clearly felt that if Dominic Strauss can't put the black spot on her, that would be the end of her career. So that is a sense yeah. of entitlement and use of, of power. But that, okay, but Walter, that's not a, just a purely French thing. I mean, I can, yeah. I think one could apply that pretty, pretty easily to the UK, couldn't we? Um, yes, I, I don't see why not. I mean, it's, uh, so it's a universally. So, is there a fundamentally more let-them-eat-cakey attitude amongst the French political elite, would you say? Well, certainly the, the, the French politically is much tighter. I mean, my sort of little conspiracy theory about the Elysee sending the Secret Service, that's very French because the French Secret Service will be totally under the control of the Elysee for whatever they're told to do. Whereas I don't think uh, that in Britain it would be like that. If the British Secret Service were told to do something highly improper for the personal interests of the president, uh, they probably wouldn't do it or they would find some way of not doing it. So in other words, our institutions are stronger in that sense. The, the, the French are... Is, and thank God they've got the canard enchaîné every, Friday, every Thursday morning to yeah. reveal um, secrets. Well, one thing I love about the French system is that at the moment we know that Carla Bruni may or may not be pregnant and the child will not be the first child born to a president in office, but it will be the first legitimate child. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a fact. Vous avez raison, madame. Right, other points. 
Stefan? Stefan, sir. Uh, first, I should congratulate Walter on in the difficult Jean Cocteau situation. <laughs> you, you made an excuse and stayed. <laughs> and got the story, which is very good. Now, it's not, a, it's not a fix, but in fact, I was watching the comedy store players last night who were at the Globe oh. Theatre. Uh, Paul Merton, Josie Lawrence, and, and Neil Malarkey, who I know a bit. And, and Neil said to me, he told me, he's told me the yes and thing before, but he also said that um, improv is also about what he called relaxed concentration. Okay. And when Walter described horse rides around the hills of Jerusalem plucking ripe oranges from the heavily laden boughs and then getting briefed by Golda Meir's advisor, sounds to me a bit like relaxed concentration. Um, and also thinking about Seve Ballesteros, you don't have to be a, a fan of golf to have been dazzled by his panache and joy at the creativity and the skill of what he was doing under immense pressure. So I'm interested in improv as a, as a, a model of how to work effectively and how teams can work effectively. In the age of the soundbite, James, is improv an option for politicians, really? A politician you can do improv will go further than anybody else. I mean, if you look at Bill Clinton, I'm, I remember I was, during the presidential primaries in the US um, in 2008, I was watching Bill Clinton in a small town in, um, in uh, I think it was South Carolina, called, called um, Clinton. And he was standing on a stage and he was walking around taking questions. And at one point, he fell off the stage. He walked off the edge. And we, it was quite a long drop. About, the stage was probably about that high. And we all, you could kind of, all the hacks kind of drew their breath in. And he lands like this. And he goes, I just wanted to get closer to you. <laughs> and it was the most incredible moment. And you just realise what a complete and utter political natural it was. Any other politician would have been thinking, oh, my God, every photographer just started taking pictures as I walked off the stage. What is this going to look like? Said, so if you can do improv in politics, you'll go farther than anybody else. I think what you also see at the moment, though, is that there's obviously a risk in it. You're more likely to say the wrong thing. So it's a, it's a question, really, about how far... If a politician wants to get to the top, if you want the top job in politics, you've got to be able to do improv. But if you're not quite good enough, you're going to get found out far faster doing improv than if you just kind of stick to the line, always use the sound bite, never deviate. But, you know, you're never going to capture people's imaginations. You're never going to convince people doing that. So you, you would be setting a limit to your own ambition. It's like the golfer who plays, to go back to golf, it's like the golfer who plays a percentage shot. You'll never win a major playing percentage shots. But isn't that the true, though, of any figure that rises to the top? It's not just improv, it's sort of the quality of their character, the Seve Ballesteros point. I mean, I cannot stand golf. Uh, I once ditched a really lovely boyfriend I was madly in love with because he insisted on running around golf courses and carts. I thought, I can't live with this. But I remember Seve Balaceros and felt sad when he died. Now, what's that about? That's sort of about the power of personality. And you see that right the way through public life, whether or not they're incredibly scripted and controlled, don't you, Viv? I mean, yeah, well, that, this Claire really... Short, before she disgraced oh. herself, really, was that kind of improv oh, yeah, character, wasn't sure. she? I'd love to see her on Whose Line Is It Anyway. She'd be great. Um, I was thinking when you were talking, James, that the thing about improv is that they say there are no mistakes, only happy accidents. Um, in politics, if you have a happy accident, then you're screwed, basically. And, and it's what I was thinking also is missing from the coalition is, is you mentioned Peter Mandelson earlier, it is a bit of spin, you know, not that I like spin, none of us do, but from their point of view, that's what they're missing. You know, they... They're not doing good improv, and when the bad improv goes wrong, like in the case of Chris Hume, where people aren't talking to each other and it's all sort of breaking bad down, um, somebody isn't spinning it into something that works. But, Walter, you've, in your time, been very close to and hung out with a lot of world leaders and figures and politicians. Would you say that there is a, de a definable magique quality to them? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's charisma. It's an, it's an old word. Uh, of course they do. And who but today, I, I, who today uh, do you on, think on has On the it? question of, of Chris Hewn, by the way, Chris Hewn, when he was on The Guardian, he came and stayed in one of our run-down chateaus for a few days. Um, uh, he, he, um... <laughs> Did he ask you to get into bed? <laughs> I don't know. The, the, um... Anyway... <laughs> 
forgot what I was going to say. No, but who today would you say has that, you know... Oh, yes, it, I, I wanted to say about Chris Hewn. Uh, anyone who has a good marriage will know that there's actually nothing so extraordinary or so wrong about putting your three points on your license on somebody else. I mean, you, you get a speeding uh, ticket, right? And it says, and you get a letter saying, who was driving your car? And you say to your wife, I've already got three points and you've got none. Would you take this for me? Yes, darling. Well, What's we wrong think... with that? I stand up for good marriage. Right, all right. And, <laughs> all right. And, and I'm on... And if so Chris Hewn really did it, she uh, then le he then left her yeah. and uh, you know said there's <laughs> half an hour to kill the story. Who 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 thinks uh, that um, it is an admirable thing to do, and a compatible thing with being in public life? Not many, I think. Nico, well, you're looking like you want to say something. I, I, well, no, I, Hang on, I, wait I, for the old mic. Slightly sympathetic to Walter. I actually had a question for Walter. Yeah. I'll say. Um, I caught a little who clip. Who are you? Uh, sorry, Nico McDonald. Um, I caught a little clip on. Um, I think it was Channel 4 yesterday with uh, Martin Bell talking about a period he regarded as the golden age of foreign correspondence, oh, really? which he characterised as being the period after the introduction of video, which you could edit in the field, and before the introduction of the mobile phone, when you were kind of shackled to the news desk back home, yeah. if you like. Uh, and he you know, lamented the, the demise of that, and of course that was his sort of golden age, if you like. Uh, and I wondered, I don't know whether you were still being a foreign correspondent then, what your reflections were on that period. And it was also a period sort of coterminous with what was called by some people the journalism of attachment, which Bell was associated with as well, of taking sides, if you like, in your reporting, which you alluded to in your discussion of Israel, although you were clearly not taking sides. And I wondered if you had experienced that phenomenon and had any reflections on whether we'd moved on from that and in, in what way, uh, if positive or negative, foreign correspondents had, had moved on in that more political aspect? Well, I think the mixture of medias is a strain on a correspondent. Uh, it, it was already there when I was there. I, I, I did occasionally have to be on telly when the, some crew was there and, and wanted me on, but I always regarded it as a bit of an intrusion. and I never enjoyed it. Um, but there are other aspects of it that I did enjoy. For example, we, I could make good money out of the BBC and, uh, and other broadcasting, who, when I was in Paris in my office writing the day's story, the BBC would ring me up and would you comment on today's story, which I could do with no effort whatsoever, and get a nice little check at the end of the month. Um, that, that's okay. Um, but uh, mixing media, no, I think the ideal foreign correspondent uh, does his job and concentrates on it, and when he's not writing, he's meeting people, he's going around. He's not constantly on the media and constantly chattering and constantly this. But I know that uh, that's an ideal world of the past. Uh, and nowadays, it's inevitable. We're, we're, we're living in, in, in one, one media. Um, it, is a, it is a question about uh, concentration. We've got a couple more points, and then we'll wrap to a close and have some more coffee and chat. Sir? Talking about foreign correspondents. Sorry, say who you are. Colin Adamson. Uh, talking about foreign correspondence always brings us to the question of Scotland, of course. Um, Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think that uh, Alex Salmond actually is probably the UK's most gifted politician. And <clears throat> in this sort of development um, of, of Scotland going for its independence, um, are there any repercussions. I mean, is this not a technique that Cameron would have to use the yes and? That's the place to use it. Yeah. James. I mean, look, I think the crucial thing is that the, the government in Westminster doesn't look like it's saying to Scotland, no, you can't do this, you can't do that. Salmon's going to try and engineer a situation where, where that appears to be happening all the time. I think the point about Salmon is interesting, though, because one of the things that, that will be fascinating to see now is Salmond has had a relatively um, gentle time in the media in Scotland, I think it's fair to say. What are we... I mean, remember the News International titles up there backed the SNP very heavily. It'll be fascinating to see now whether there's a kind of greater scrutiny on Salmond from the kind of, from the, from want of a better term, the London press, and how that begins to play back in Scotland. Because already, you know, as always, when someone rises up like this, you know, they've kind of all the whispers start up. It'll be fascinating to see whether there is more of a focus on him 
um, in, in a less flattering light. And if that does happen, whether Salmond has the skill to play that back up in Scotland as a kind of attack on him, any attack on him is an attack on Scotland, an attack on Scotland's aspirations. That will be something very interesting to Thank watch. Thank you. There's a woman behind you, a gentleman over there, and then we will wrap up and you can all queue to buy an ideal occupation. No pressure, but no one's leaving the room until they've all been sold. <laughs> right, woman at the back there. Woman at the back in support of Walter. I've just had the luck to be in Norway with a lot of the young people who are behind the Arab Spring. Amongst them was Wael Gonim, the young Google executive from Egypt. And just the point is, to, to really back up Walter, each one of these people, and most of them are in their 20s, and it's been called the Twitter uprising, it's been called the Google uprising, it's been called the Facebook uprising. They all said to the man and woman, please don't believe that this is a Facebook revolution. You know about it. You, the Western media, have taken it on because that's where you've heard about it. These revolutions come from us on the street. The reason it happened in Egypt was because the internet was shut down. That's why we went onto the street. Please don't abandon us now. Or as a young blogger, Tunisian blogger said, who was behind the, very much one of the people behind the revolution there, we're now being gunned down in the streets again, but you're not looking anymore. So it's just really to raise the point of revolutions aren't just in the media and don't just move through Facebook. This is when we really need to be paying attention right now. So, Walter, thank you. thank you for raising that and reminding us. Thank you. I'm going to take the last point, and then we'll take some wrapping up sentiments. Gentleman over there needs a microphone. Hi, Abhik uh, from The Economist. Uh, I have a question for James. Um, you spoke about the compact between Cameron and Clegg, whereby Cameron can sack a Lib Dem minister but not appoint one. Um, have the two of them ever acknowledged that compact in public? And um, is this the first time uh, there is this sort of an arrangement at Westminster, Westminster if not in Europe? Thank you. Um, it was the first time I've had a, a peacetime coalition. So, I mean, it, it, yes, in essence, it is the first time. And I think it is um, publicly acknowledged in the kind of protocols of government. I mean, there is a kind of cabinet office manual that sets all this out. Um, there was a kind of initially a, an early ding-dong where the Lib Dems wanted to say that they could, only they could sack Lib Dem ministers. Only Clegg could sack Lib Dem ministers. But that's not really constitutionally possible because the Prime Minister has to be able to sack everyone. So the compromise they came up with is that the Prime Minister can sack, but Clegg gets to nominate the replacement. And that, that, is, and that is, I think, all publicly acknowledged. And that's, but it's certainly the first time we've had that in this country. But it's also the first time we've had a, a peacetime coalition in this country for 70-odd Yes. So it's a kind of a necessary response to that. Thank you. Um, Viv, who is your comedic heroine or hero? Oh, um, I'm quite into quite obscure people. There's a guy called uh, John Gordillo who's around at the moment who used to produce Eddie Izzard and later in life realised he wanted to be in front of the camera rather than behind it. Um, I do love Tina Fey. Um, and I also love a, a guy called Rufus Hound, who um, I went to see him the other week at the Comedy Store, and he did an amazing, amazing set about feminism. And it was, he was saying things like, women, you love your magazines because they tell you that you are disgusting. <laughs> and it, it was so true. It was all so true and so brilliant. And there were several women in the audience who totally didn't get it and they attacked him <laughs> with a ferocity and he then had to shut them down and made himself look like a complete sexist um, yeah so all right Rufus so Hand, he's so great walter who are your desert island journalists at the moment because i know that you go online and pour over global newspapers and so on who do you most read whose voice Yes, right. I like, I like um, comment pieces. I like stimulating comment pieces. Um, Simon Jenkins I like very much, and I actually look forward, when something is going on, I look forward to what is, what is he going to say, because he often says something quite outrageous and, and argues it. Uh, sometimes I feel he has his tongue in his cheek. He doesn't really believe what he's arguing, arguing because he's very good at arguing. Uh, but, uh, yes, I do. I love, the, I love the Internet for reading all these things. It's funny, but everybody I know, journalist or otherwise, everybody says, oh, I like to, I like to hold the paper in my hand. I love that, and, and, and I miss it, and I just couldn't get... 
For me, it's exactly the opposite. I hate holding a bloody great paper with pages <laughs> falling out the whole time and having to learn and all this. Whereas the internet, and with my tired old eyes, if it's, if it's not big enough, I press control and plus, and it's bigger. And if it's still not big enough, I press control and Thanks. plus again. Thank you. And James, finally, who is exciting in a funny way or in a significant or serious way for you in politics not so much the ones to watch but who are you compelled to follow i think the most interesting person in the government is george osborne in that he's he knows precisely he's always had this ever since the Tories didn't win the election he's had his sights on winning a tory majority in 2015 and he's been kind of moving the chess pieces around the board um and it's just watching that process and watching how he tries to not go so far that the Lib Dems say, oh, hang on a second, we can't live with this. Watching, the kind of the, watching him pull the strings is an intriguing art. Well, thank you. Well, we've had the inner workings, the inner strings of your various professions laid bare for us. I think that's been completely lovely. I would just, before you all applaud and leave, like to thank the unseen hands behind today, variously from our podcast team and our coffee team, to Lily Meads, Liberty Oberlander, Emma Fisher, Barnaby Simons and David Braham who've basically run the club and brought you all here today. Thank you and thank my speakers. Thank